I would encourage you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. As we've been walking through this short prophet together, one of the things that I have struck me is a unifying theme of faithfulness. And as you, as you see these different uh, sections of Malachi unfold, that theme of faithfulness becomes more pronounced, especially the faithfulness of God versus our lack of faithfulness. Seems like in Malachi, he really wants to drive home the point that God is faithful to his people, even when we are not faithful to him. He is faithful to his promises, even when we are not faithful in our obedience. He is a faithful God. And in light of that, in light of God's faithfulness to people who are often unfaithful, Malachi is urging a return to faithfulness. He's urging a repentance, a turning back to that faithful God. In our text this morning, in verse 6 through verse 12 of chapter 3, Malachi is going to address the people uh, regarding the use of their resources and their unfaithfulness to God as demonstrated in their withholding their tithes and their offerings from God. And he challenges them to repent, to return to the Lord in light of his faithfulness to them. In verse 6 of Malachi chapter 3, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, our God, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you in worship today. We thank you that we have the opportunity to open up your holy word. Cause us to remember, Father, that there are many places, many people, that do not have access to your word as we do. And we have the opportunity, the privilege today to open up your word and to read these ancient truths that you have given to your servant Malachi and to us. Father, help us to read this, to understand it, to meditate on it today, 
And may your spirit teach us and apply these truths to our hearts so that we might not only know you better, but so that we might be transformed into your likeness. God, thank you for being faithful to us. Call us back to you that we might be faithful and walk in obedience before you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. One of the first things that Malachi does in this passage is he teaches the people, reminds the people that God is unchanging. God is unchanging. What does he mean by that? Well, when we think about the changelessness of God, we're thinking about who he is in the fundamental attributes of his character. That in whatever God is, whatever attribute you want to describe of God, whether it be his power, that he is all-powerful, whether it be his knowledge, that he knows everything from beginning to end in intimate detail, whether it be his holiness, his grace, whatever it is, any attribute of God, it is constant, it is unchanging, it is forever. God can never be less powerful than he is. He can never be more powerful than he is. How are you more powerful than infinite power? God can never be more knowledgeable than he is. He can never be less knowledgeable than he is. He can never be more wise, less wise. He can never be more holy because he is the ultimate standard of holiness. He can never be less than holy because he is God. He is always constant. He is unchanging. But Malachi takes it a step further in verse number six. And there's a specific reason that he wants us to know that God is unchanging. And that specific reason that he wants us to know that God is unchanging is because God is unchanging, we are saved and we are preserved. Because God is unchanging, we live. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So, therefore, as as a logical conclusion of my not changing, you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So I think that Malachi has in view not just the overall changelessness of God, which we call his immutability, but he has specifically in view the faithfulness of God to his promises. That because God is unchanging, that when God speaks a word of covenant, a word of promise, God cannot go back on that word. God cannot renege on his covenants, on his promises. That's why we're not consumed, Malachi says to the people of Israel. Because if God could break his promise, if God could break his covenant, surely by now we would have been wiped out and long forgotten. Because of how unfaithful we have been to God. So in essence, what Malachi is revealing in verse 6 is praise the Lord that God is faithful to us even when we are not faithful to him. He is the unchanging God. And it is his faithfulness to his promises that preserves us. The problem is not with God's faithfulness, is it? The problem is with our unfaithfulness. 
And that's what he gets to in verse 7. The problem is not with God's faithfulness. God is constant. The problem is with our unfaithfulness. In verse 7, he says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away. So, in other words, we have a long track record of unfaithfulness. And referring to the nation of Israel, he's speaking the truth, isn't he? Ever since the time of our ancestors, and by that he means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The sons of Jacob that came out of Egypt under Moses. Ever since the time of our ancestors, we have continued to turn away from God's decrees and not kept them. If you've been with us on Sunday nights in the book of Exodus, we saw that while Moses was still up on the mountain, getting God's word and his plans for the tabernacle, at that very moment that Moses was meeting with God, the people of Israel were down below committing idolatry. I mean, the the ink, if I can say it this way, the ink on the first commandment was not even dry yet before they were breaking it down at the bottom, making a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping it. So when Malachi says, ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees, that is true. But what about us? Well, we we have a long track record of unfaithfulness too, don't we? Now, maybe it's not as huge and public as maybe bowing down before a golden calf in Exodus 32. But we can point to unfaithfulness to God in our lives every single day of our lives. Whether it be in word, in thought, in motive, in deed, in lack of deed. We have a long track record of unfaithfulness, which makes... The next thing that Malachi says, all the more remarkable, when he says, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. In spite of our long track record of unfaithfulness, God says, I'm still here. I'm still here. Why? Because he's unchanging. So again, the problem is not with us. The problem is not with God. The problem is with us, isn't it? The problem is not with God's faithfulness. The problem is with our unfaithfulness. And yet God is still there with open arms. And he says, return to me. Return to me and I'll return to you. Another way of understanding that is God hasn't gone anywhere. Right? And God is unchanging. He's still there. He's where he's always been. In in us returning to God, God's returning to us. But really, we're the ones that have moved, not God. He's still there. And so God's openness and his faithfulness to restore. We have a long track record of unfaithfulness, and yet we have 1 John 1, 9, which says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let us return. But here's the problem. Oftentimes our blindness and our cynicism toward our unfaithfulness gets in the way of us returning to God. Sometimes we're so blinded to our own unfaithfulness that it keeps us from returning to God. And that's the question that the Israelites ask back to Malachi at the end of verse 7. 
But you ask, how are we to return? Another way of understanding that is, why should we return? What do we need to return from? What's the problem? We're still here. What do we need to return from? It's a blindness, isn't it? It's a blindness to their waywardness. And that's the that's one of the amazing things about reading through a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, especially in the prophets. As the prophets would rebuke the people for their various transgressions, a lot of times the people were completely oblivious to their, to their transgressions. They had no idea. They think everything's going on just fine, and here comes Isaiah or Jeremiah or Malachi and says, look, here it is. This is what you're doing. You've broken your covenant with God. You're being unfaithful. Return to him. And they say, what? What have we done? We need God to open our eyes, don't we? We need God to open our eyes. We need God to open our eyes at the very beginning of our faith, right? So uh, there would be no faith in us, no conversion, no regeneration of heart if God were not to open our blind eyes. But do we still suffer from some blindness along the way, even as Christians? I think we do. Because our hearts are still tainted by that remnant of sinfulness. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Who can understand it? So even in our walk with Christ, we need God to show us our unfaithfulness so that we might confess and return. David even says in Psalm 19, God cleanse me even from secret faults. Perhaps meaning not just the faults that are secret from other people, but even the faults that are secret even to me that I don't even know about. We need God to open our eyes. And so here are the Israelites. God is open. Return to me. I'll return to you. Even though you have a long track record of unfaithfulness, I am here welcome to receive you when you repent. And they say, in what? Why do we need to return to you? So... Malachi gives them the reason why they need to return. Verse 8. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? There's that blindness again. What have we done? I don't see how we're robbing you, God. In tithes and offerings, and you're under a curse because you're robbing me. So our unfaithfulness to God is manifested in a lot of ways, right? As we walk through Malachi, we've seen the people's unfaithfulness to God manifested in different ways. It was manifested in their, in their faulty worship. They're uh, bringing faulty sacrifices to God. It was profane. It was, uh, it was meaningless, worthless worship. Uh, we saw their unfaithfulness in their, their lack of deeds, their lack of teaching the word for the priests. We saw their unfaithfulness in their breaking covenants with one another and divorcing their spouses and marrying foreign wives. We've seen their unfaithfulness in the early part of chapter 3 with their lack of justice and their lack of care and concern for their brothers and sisters. 
So their unfaithfulness has been demonstrated in many ways, but here in this passage, Malachi is calling them to to task for a specific manifestation of their unfaithfulness, and that is in their selfishness and in their lack of giving to God and his work. Our unfaithfulness may be manifested in our lack of giving to God and the work of the ministry. Our unfaithfulness may be manifested in our lack of giving to God and the work of the ministry. In verse 8, Malachi shows us that withholding tithes and offerings from God is robbing him of what rightfully belongs to him. How will a mortal rob God? By withholding your tithes and your offerings. It seems that what is in view here is the tenth of their contributions, which were, in this context, seemed to be primarily agricultural. According to Leviticus, they were supposed to bring a tenth of all of the produce of their land. And that was to come in to the storehouse so that the Levites and the priests, the servants of God, might be taken care of. And that's why he says in verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So they were gleaning their grain. They were harvesting their fields, but they were not giving the tenth that the law of Moses prescribed that they were to give on that. And then there's another word that's also here. It says not only the tithes or the 10%, but also the offerings, which seem to be a word that refers to more of a voluntary free will offering that is not necessarily a percentage, but one that is just given out of a grateful, cheerful heart. And Malachi says, you're doing neither. You're not bringing your tithes, which is required by law. You're also not bringing any free will offerings to God. You're robbing God what is rightfully his. In two senses, I think. One, because there's a sense in which everything belongs to God, right? Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Why? Because he created it. God's the creator, therefore everything in this world belongs to him. If you make something, it's yours. If you write a song, you copyright it, it's yours. God made the world his trademark is on it, it's his. The whole, it all belongs to him. But there's another sense in which they're robbing God, and that is because they're robbing him with specific respect to the covenant of Moses. That they, as a people, had entered into this covenant with God, and God said, here's my covenant, and the people responded and said, everything that you have said, we will do at Mount Sinai. But yet, they're not doing it. Therefore, they're robbing God of what rightfully belongs to him. And so they're not bringing their tithes. They're not bringing their offerings. Now, this brings up the question for us, an interpretive question, is are New Testament Christians still bound by the Mosaic tithe? In that same legal sense of a tenth. That's a big question, one that I can't fully answer in the few minutes that we have this morning. But let me just mention a couple of things. One, our understanding of the Old Testament tithe is deficient and often mistaken. Because we think of the Old Testament tithe often as a simple 10%. 
when what actually you read through the, the Old Testament law and you see different tithes at different places for different purposes, and you have two tithes that are taken every year, and you have another tithe that is taken every three years, so that really what ends up happening is that an average of about 23% is what the Old Testament law required of the people of God. So our understanding of tithing is deficient, even from what the law states. Another point I think that's that we need to understand is that the Old Testament tithe, the Mosaic tithe in particular, was given for the maintenance of the nation. So there's a sense in which under a theocracy, under the rule of God, the tithes that the law required were like a tax. They're like a divine tax, a holy tax, because it's a theocracy, but it was a means of sustaining the people and all of the things that went on with the people, the temple, the tabernacle, the worship, everything that went on. So there's a sense in which the Levitical, the Mosaic tithes were special to them as a nation. So how then does it apply to us? Well, let's think of think about a couple of points. One is the concept of tithing, the example of tithing predates the law of Moses. So you can go back into Genesis and you can see Abraham offering a tithe to Melchizedek. You can see in the passage that we read earlier this morning in Genesis 28, that after God appeared to Jacob, Jacob said, I will follow you, Lord, and I'm making this vow that if you bring me back here, everything that I have, I will give you a tenth. That's before the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. So the concept of a tenth given an honor to the Lord, predates the Mosaic law. Then we have the Mosaic law, which governed the time from Moses until the New Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, and the concept of tithing, 10%, is virtually silent in the New Testament. The only time where you see tithing referenced in the New Testament, typically speaking, is still within Old Testament contexts still within Israel, the nation of Israel, or referring back to the Old Testament practices. In terms of the letters of Paul or James or Peter to the churches, very little, if anything, is specifically mentioned about a tithe. Now, that doesn't mean that nothing is mentioned about giving in the New Testament, but it's not specifically discussed as a tithe. The principle in the New Testament that comes over to us is the principle of giving graciously out of the grace that has been given to us. That's the principle. We've been blessed bountifully, therefore we should give bountifully. And let us give with a cheerful and grateful heart. So what I'm saying is let's not be legalistic about it because I don't think the New Testament specifically lays on us the specific tenth of the Mosaic tithe. So we only give, we only have to give like $5 then, right? Or like 1%. No, no, if we do that, we're missing the whole point of God's abundant grace that's been poured out on us. If anything, we should go back to the Old Testament law and we should use 10% as a basic guideline. And we can give over and abundantly above that. Now, I'm not preaching on tithing or on giving because our church is in dire straits. And this is not a 
we need to give more kind of message. I'm preaching it because Malachi talks about it, but also giving to the Lord is not just for the church or for the ministries of the church. It's for your heart too. So if you don't give, yes, the church and its ministries will have a little bit less to work with, but really the one who's suffering the most is your own heart. So we need to give because it's good for us to give. Out of a cheerful and grateful heart, we need to give. But here in this Old Testament context, they were robbing God because they were more concerned about themselves than they were about God's priorities. And some of what Malachi says here seems very reminiscent of what Haggai says when the people were more concerned about their own houses than they were about building the temple of God. So my question of application is simply this. Where are your priorities? And a quick overview of your checkbook can often give you a good glimpse of where your priorities are. Have we robbed God? Have we been unfaithful to God by not giving to him what he deserves and what is rightfully his? But here's where Malachi goes next, and that is a return to faithfulness to the Lord will result in God's abundant blessings. A return to faithfulness to the Lord will result in God's abundant blessings. It appears that because the people were were withholding their offerings from God, that they were under the curse of God. They weren't bringing in their tenth of their crops, and so their crops started to hurt. God was withholding the rains. He was withholding the sunshine. He was not giving them a full abundance of crops. And that is exactly what Deuteronomy said would happen. If you don't honor God in this covenant, God's curses will fall on you. And so their crops were not blessed. But he does say, if you'll return. Verse 7, he said, return to me and I'll return to you. And then in verse number 10, he says, test me in this. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll keep the pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, if you give to me what is rightfully mine, God says, then I will bless you abundantly and everyone will be able to see it. It will bring honor and blessing to you and ultimately honor and glory to me, the Lord, because I'm blessing you. A return to faithfulness to the Lord will result in God's abundant blessings. I could preach for another half hour on the implications of this text for what is popular today as the health and wealth gospel. I'll just make one brief comment about that. This promise of giving to God so that he will bless us is not to be understood in the way that Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and T.D. Jakes and all of the others are explaining it. So if you send me money, God's going to bless you, right? But the way that often works out is I have your money and I have a Rolex and a Ferrari and you're still living in the slums. 
So don't take this passage and misapply it as it is often misapplied by many of the health and wealth prosperity preachers of today. This is, we need to understand this in the context of the Old Testament and its covenant blessings and curses. But as the New Testament people of God, we can expect God's blessing hand on us as we walk in faithfulness to him. But we can also expect God's hand of chastening and discipline if we're not. So that is an abiding New Testament concept. This is not telling us that if you walk right, God's going to make you a millionaire. But this is saying that God's faithful to you and his blessings will be on you as you walk in his ways. But if we are unfaithful and turn from him, we can expect his disciplining hand to come on us. The main idea of this passage is the Lord promises to take care of his people. He's faithful to them, but they need to demonstrate faithfulness to him in their stewardship. And he warns his people that he will withhold his blessing if they are ungrateful. So the Lord promises to take care of his people, but they need to demonstrate faithfulness to him in their stewardship. And he warns them that he'll withhold his blessing if they're ungrateful. May the Lord open our eyes so that we are no longer blinded, so that when the Lord says, return to me, we will see the waywardness of our ways and will return to him. Let us give God the honor that he is due. Let us give God the faithfulness that he is due because he is faithful to us. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your unchanging faithfulness. I thank you, Father, that when you make a promise, you keep that promise. That you are faithful to your covenants. And that because you are faithful to your covenants, we can have hope, an eternal hope of eternal life that can never be taken away because it is of your faithfulness that we are preserved, that we are kept, that we are saved. God, may we as your people honor your faithfulness to us by us being faithful to you. And if we're not, that we would return to you and confess our sins so that we might be under your blessing again. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. May we walk before you, the faithful God. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.